Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Allie Walker from the Travelers Health Branch at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I'm going to talk a little bit today about, sorry, um, emerging and re-emerging vector-borne viral illnesses. And we'll talk about chick, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. And I want this to be an open dialogue. Um, feel free to ask questions. I've got a lot to cover, um, but if you, everyone holds our questions till the end, then we have to go all the way back. So ask it when it's relevant. Just raise your hand. I'm happy to to discuss anything that affects you guys. And I know a lot of you have a lot of experiences um, in different places with these diseases, um, and I hope you learned something new from this discussion today. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Um, and the objectives for today are to identify the common uh, symptoms of chikungunya, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika to describe preventive measures for mosquito-borne viral illnesses, and to describe treatment options. So a little bit of background. Mosquitoes spread diseases. I'm sure you're all aware. They spread a lot of diseases. There are 2.7 million deaths and 500 million cases annually of malaria. We're not going to talk about malaria today because it's parasitic, not viral. But just as an overview, there are over 20 million cases of dengue annually in over 100 countries. Um, other diseases include chikungunya, Japanese encephalitis, West Nile virus, and yellow fever, and Zika. Very few in America, it's just uh, Japanese encephalitis and yellow fever, are vaccine preventable. Um, mosquitoes such as the Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus are capable of carrying multiple diseases. That means one little mosquito can have multiple diseases in its system, and when it bites you, it can transmit multiple diseases. Um, Mosquito-borne disease poses a significant health threat to nearly all travelers. So they're endemic in many countries. If you go to that country, there's no reason that you wouldn't get it, just like anyone else who lives there. Um, they're common around the world, and the presentation will review four vector-borne diseases carried by the 80s mosquitoes, chikungunya, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. So let's talk a little bit about the vector. The mosquitoes eat their blood meals. For malaria, we know that they uh, use insecticide-treated bed nets, stay inside in the evenings because they bite in the evenings and overnight. 80 species bite all day long, 24-7. So these, uh, while they're good bite prevention in the evening, you have to use bite prevention during the day as well for the 80 species. Um, they will bite all day. Uh, the number of blood meals can vary based on... Uh, the mosquito. So the Egypti will take multiple blood meals. If an 80s mosquito, if an 80s Egypti mosquito is carrying dengue, it could bite you, and then bite you, and then bite you, and transmit dengue to all of you. The Albopictus is different. It takes one blood meal. So if it bites you, it's not going to bite another person. So there are different vectors. The 80s Egypti is likely to promote outbreaks, whereas the Albopictus likely isn't, although you can see transmission of viruses, usually in clusters with Albopictus. The preferred host for the Egypti is humans. Um, for the Albopictus, they will bite any mammal, humans included. They both prefer to lay eggs in standing water, and the amount of standing water needed for them to procreate is minuscule. So a lot of times you'll see pools of water in flower pots or in old tires, and this is the perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes. They carry chikungunya, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. 
Um, and the Aedes aegypti is prevalent in urban communities, whereas the Albopictus you can find in urban communities as well as in rural areas. So let's talk a little bit about chikungunya. It's a single-stranded RNA virus in the genus Alpha virus in the family Togaviridae. The modes of transmission include a bite from an Aedes species mosquito, both Aegypti and Apopictus, and maternal fetal transmission. It's rarely transmitted from mother to newborn at the time of birth, um, and there are no known infections via breastfeeding. Um, there have been infections via laboratory exposure, but there have, no, there have been no known reports of chikungunya virus spread through uh, blood transfusions. This map uh, shows the prevalence of reported chikungunya virus. Um, and I'll say, if you look at the green, we're talking about mosquito prevalence, right? So these mosquitoes are uh, prevalent in the tropics and subtropics, generally between like the southern U.S. and northern Argentina. So for all of these, the maps are going to look pretty similar. Um, and you're going to see these, this species, uh, or these two species of mosquitoes in that general area, and therefore infections as well. So chikungunya illness, the symptoms usually begin three to seven days after exposure, and the most common symptoms are fever and joint pain. Other symptoms include headache, muscle pain, joint swelling, and rash, um, and most patients feel better within a week. Um, some experience arthralgia for months or even years. We have ongoing studies to see how long this lasts, but it can be very detrimental. Um, fatalities are rare and treatment is supportive only. So because there's no vaccine available, we have to use mosquito bite prevention. And this is going to be a common theme with all of these diseases. Don't let the mosquito bite you. <laughs> uh, in terms of diagnostics, uh, preliminary diagnosis is based on the clinical features. Uh, and you would ask about the places and dates of travel to see if there was a possibility of exposure in the places where these diseases are prevalent. Um, laboratory diagnosis for chikungunya uses serum or plasma. Um, we do IgM antibody. And viral culture can detect virus within three days of illness onset. Um, viral RNA can usually be detected during the first eight days of illness. Um, and you can definitively exclude chikungunya using convalescent phase samples. Um, and we have guidance at the, on the CDC website. If you Google CDC um, and chikungunya, you'll find uh, guidelines to differentiate between chikungunya and dengue because presentation can be similar. Speaking of dengue, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about dengue. We are having an incredibly high dengue season this year. Um, I'm sure many of you are aware so dengue virus is also a single-stranded RNA virus, and there are four different serotypes, aptly named dengue 1, dengue 2, dengue 3, and dengue 4. Very creative. Um, infection with one serotype is not protective against uh, infection with other serotypes. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. Uh, dengue is in the genus Flaviviridae and the family Flavivirus, and is closely related to Zika virus, yellow fever virus, Japanese encephalitis virus, and West Nile virus. These are all Flaviviruses. If you remember, chikungunya is an alpha virus, so its diagnosis can be uh, it can ex its diagnosis can exclude all of these other viruses because it's in a different family. 
With dengue, there are more than 2.5 billion people worldwide at risk for dengue virus infection. And the WHO calls dengue the world's most important mosquito-borne virus, with more than 20 million cases annually in over 100 countries. Um, sequential infe- infections with different dengue strains increase the risk for severe dengue. Severe dengue is dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome. So if you're bitten by a mosquito with dengue 1, you may be asymptomatic. But if you're bitten with, by a mosquito with a dengue 2 strain, you're more likely to have severe consequences from that infection than you were from the dengue 1 strain. Um, and not to confuse everyone, but the reverse is also true. If you get bitten by dengue 2 on your first exposure, you're not likely to have uh, severe consequences. The risk increases if you're then bitten by dengue 1 or dengue 4. It's always the second exposure because of the way your immune system reacts to infection. There is a vaccine in development. There was an article this week in the New England Journal of Medicine talking about the new uh, dengue virus vaccine. So hopefully this is more promising than the last versions. Um, Fatalities do occur. Modes, yeah. Rarely, yeah. Um, so dengue is transmitted by the bite of an infected 80 species mosquito, either Aegypti or Alpopictus. Uh, there's documented transmission from an infectant pregnant mother to the fetus, and documented transmission via organ transplants and via blood transfusions. We'll look at the dengue map, similar to the chikungunya maps. We're looking at the prevalence of mosquitoes that carry this. So you're looking at the tropics and subtropics. This map is of the Americas and the Caribbean, where we're seeing high transmission rates this year. Africa, the same. And all of these maps are available um, in the CDC Yellow Book online. They're all free. You can Google them. Um, I've put some of the links in the presentation. And dengue in Asia and Oceania. Again, you're looking at mosquito prevalence when you're looking at these uh, reported rates. So the incubation period for dengue is four to seven days, and viremia is highest during the first three to four days after fever onset. The level of viremia and fever are closely correlated, and the the mosquito vector incubates dengue virus for eight to 12 days before it can be transmitted to another human. Uh, There is a dengue clinical case management course that CDC has available online. Also, easy to find via Google. Um, Dengue illness, the most common symptoms are high fever, headache, and joint pain. And other symptoms include severe pain behind the eyes, rash, mild bleeding, for example, from the nose or gums, and easy bruising. For severe dengue infections, as fever declines, you get symptoms of vomiting, abdominal pain, difficulty breathing, and these may develop uh, later on. This marks the beginning of a critical 24 to 48-hour period, and the treatment is supportive. We always avoid the use of NSAIDs because of the hemorrhagic possibility. So in terms of the phases of uh, infections resulting in dengue hemorrhagic fever, you have your fever that lasts two to seven days, and then the next phase is the plasma leak, and this is a critical period. So there's a potential for uh, increased plasma leakage, metabolic anomalies, um, and fulminant hepatic failure during this time period. So this is where you're going to see dengue shock syndrome and dengue hemorrhagic fever. Reabsorption, if you clear this period, lasts two to four days.
medical person. Mm -hmm. And so I know the high fever and I know the bleeding. So mm -hmm. what do you give them for the high fever? It's supportive therapy, Tylenol. Even that mm -hmm. we want. Mm -hmm. it's there's, there's not much to do. Again, it's supportive therapy. You don't want to give the NSAIDs. You don't want to do anything that will, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Any other questions on dengue? The current case counts of dengue that we're seeing this year, for some countries, uh, we are seeing higher cases at this point in the year than we see in total for the past five years. So it's a high dengue year. Um, and the wet season hasn't even started in Africa yet. So something to be very aware of. Um, and it's important to understand, again, the risk of dengue, of severe dengue is much higher if you've been exposed previously than on first exposure. So if you have uh, patients or if you yourself have traveled to these areas before, a lot of first-time infections with dengue are asymptomatic. You might never know you had it before, but the second infection could be more dangerous. So the reinfection is not in the same season, or you can get, a, you can be reinfected years, years later. Years later. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it seems like uh, chikungunya is similar to dengue. Mm -hmm. And what if you get one of those, would they kind of have a problem with each other? Uh, so chikungunya, no, because it's an alpha virus. If you get Zika and then dengue, or dengue and then Zika, um, there may be uh, implications. We're studying those now. So there's, there's been a lot of research, especially with the Zika epidemic in the Americas in the past four years, um, to look at how previous infection with one impacts response to the other. Yep. Oh, sorry. Which part of Africa is mm -hmm. dengue prevalent? Uh, most of Sub-Saharan Africa. You mentioned that there's yep. high incidence. Is that just one geographical region? No. It's across all three. We've had over a million cases so far this season, um, and that's a reported dengue. So, again, the majority of dengue cases are asymptomatic. So these, the number of people actually infected has been enormous this year. We've seen outbreaks in the Philippines, in Brazil, Guam, uh, Bangladesh. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't have good data on this, um, and there's, there are a lot of questions that that encompasses, right? So for pediatric patients, if they were, and this is just an example, if while pregnant a mother was exposed to dengue um, and transmit that immunity, uh, the, either the, the virus or the immunity, to the fetus, and then the baby is born and is bitten by a dengue mosquito, a dengue carrying mosquito. That's their second infection, right? So they're at a higher risk of severe dengue. If it's the child's first um, dengue exposure, then the risk is going to be lower. So there are a lot, of, there are a lot of implicating factors that would distinguish some subgroups from others. So we can't make blanket statements about all people. Do you have a okay. anything else on dengue? It's a big one. Okay. All right. So yellow fever. Again, a single-stranded RNA virus. Genus Flaviviridae. Uh, genus Flavi. Flavi that's not right. 
excuse this, uh, it's the genus Flaviviridae family Flavivirus, um, closely related to uh, dengue, Japanese encephalitis, West Nile virus, and Zika. Modes of transmission, a bite from an infected mosquito. Maternal fetal transmission is also seen. It's rarely transmitted at the time of birth, generally in uterus. Um, it's given high levels of viremia, bloodborne transmission is theoretically possible um, to occur via either needle sticks or transfusion. So there are three different types of yellow fever virus transmission cycles. The first is the sylvatic or jungle cycle, and this is transmission between non-human primates and mosquitoes. The intermediate or savanna cycle is virus transmissions between mosquitoes and humans living or working in jungle border areas. And this is basically incidental contact. So the virus may be transmitted from monkeys to humans or human to humans via mosquitoes because the humans are in a location where there is sylvatic transmission occurring. The urban cycle is different. And this is transmission of virus between humans and peridomestic mosquitoes, primarily the Aedes aegypti. Um, and this is the primary source of outbreaks in humans. So areas with risk of yellow fever virus transmission in Africa are shown here in yellow. Um, and in South America, they're shown here. And this map has changed recently. So the areas with risk of transmission in yellow have, are well-established yellow fever transmission zones. The areas in... Oh, Sorry about that. Uh, the areas in pink, I can't really tell what color that looks like on your screen. Um, the areas in pink are newly established yellow fever transmission areas, and this is since 2018. We saw yellow fever outbreaks on the coast of Brazil um, where we had not seen yellow fever previously. And this is the first time that we've had vaccine recommendations for major urban areas in Brazil, um, like Rio and Sao Paulo. Um, it was restricted mostly to the Amazonian region and more rural locations previously. So this is a change. And this is as of 2018. Yes. All right. um, the incubation period of yellow fever is three to six days. And most people infected with yellow fever, fever virus may have asymptomatic or clinically inapparent infections, similar to the other flaviviruses. Majority of people, you would never know that you were infected. If you are symptomatic, the initial presentation is nonspecific influenza-like syndromes with sudden onset of fever, chills, headache, backache, myalgias, prostration, nausea, and vomiting. And about 15% of patients progress to the more serious toxic form of yellow fever disease. So again, you've got this huge base of the pyramid of people who you never know got infected. Smaller proportion have this nonspecific influenza-like illness, and then of those, only 15% progress to the more serious yellow fever disease. Um, and for, for severe cases with hepatorenal dysfunction, the case fatality ratio is 20 to 50%. There's been a live attenuated virus vaccine in use since the late 1930s, and a single dose provides lifelong protection for most people get vaccinated. <laughs> um, location centers for uh, yellow fever vaccine are available on the CDC website. Uh, there are 
currently we are using uh, a European vaccine. So most of the clinics that generally have yellow fever virus for the past 50 years don't have it. So we have a limited number available of clinics having yellow fever vaccine available now. So go to the website, check and make sure before you make an appointment that you're going to a yellow fever vaccine clinic. Um, and for clinicians, there's a yellow fever vaccine course available online. No worries. Um, so proof of vaccination um, on an international certificate of vaccination or prophylaxis, called the yellow card, um, is required for admission to certain countries. And as of July 2016, yellow fever revaccination at 10-year intervals cannot be required by countries for entry per the World Health Organization. So it used to be that if you had your vaccination 10 years ago, you had to have a booster dose to get into these countries. Um, there's been a revision of those recommendations. Now it's one lifetime dose, unless you're part of the specific groups that I'll mention in a second. Um, and if you've had one dose and you're not part of these subgroups, you should be good. Uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices in the U.S. approved recommendation that one dose of yellow fever provides long-lasting protection and is adequate for most travelers. Specific groups should receive additional doses, and other groups may consider additional doses. This is CDC speak for we're not going to say you have to have it, but you should be thinking about it. Um, and for the current recommendations, you can go to this website. Um, severe adverse reactions associated with yellow fever vaccine. We see hypersensitivity, immediate reactions characterized by rash, urticaria, and bronchospasm, and yellow fever vaccine-associated neurologic disease. This is a conglomerate of, of uh, clinical symptoms, including meningoencephalitis, Guillain-Barre, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, and cranial nerve palsies are rarely seen. It occurs three to 28 days after vaccination with yellow fever vaccine. Um, we also have yellow fever vaccine-associated viscerotrophic disease, and this is similar to wild-type yellow fever virus infection, and it often leads to multiple organ dysfunction syndrome or multi-organ failure and death. Um, for those over, uh, over 65 suspect or confirmed cases of viscerotrophic vaccine-associated disease have been reported worldwide. So this is a very low number for the number of vaccines given but we're putting it out there as a possibility. Um, the hypersensitivity occurs at a rate of 1.8 cases per 100,000 doses administered, and yellow fever vaccine-associated neurologic disease occurs at a rate of 0.8 per 100,000 doses administered. This differs by age. Going back to your question about how, it uh, how things are associated by age and subgroup, patients greater than or equal to 60 years of age have a rate of 1.6 per 100,000, and patients greater than or equal to 70 years, 2.3 per 100,000. It's better to receive your yellow fever vaccine earlier in life. Yellow fever vaccine-associated viscerotropic disease occurs at a rate of 0.4 cases per 100,000 doses in the general population. For patients 60 to 69, one per 100,000 doses, and for patients 70 and older, 2.3 per 100,000. So if you are a physician that is giving uh, yellow fever vaccine, it's important to talk to your patients about their age, 
whether this is a booster dose or their primary dose of vaccine. Um, for those of you traveling, again, thinking about where you are in life um, and what your risk is at the destination. So there are a lot of contraindications for yellow fever vaccine. Allergy to any vaccine component, age less than six months, symptomatic HIV with CD4 count less than 200, thymus disorder associated with abnormal immune cell function, um, malignant neoplasms, transplantation, and immunosuppressive and immunomodulatory therapies. Precautions are different than contraindications. Precautions are think twice about administration. Um, and this is age six to eight months, greater than or equal to 60, as we've just shown, um, asymptomatic HIV infection, pregnancy, and breastfeeding. Any questions about yellow fever before I go on? Yep. Sorry, just a general question. Yep. And what period during your infected phase are you still able to transmit? So if I get bitten by mosquito after I've had that mm -hmm. reaction, that flu-like illness, and would, it, would I still have enough virus in there to transmit it to someone else? Mm -hmm. um, so the, and we'll talk a little bit about this when I move to Zika. So viremia in the blood is short-lived um, for most of these viruses. So we talk about less than two weeks generally, um, but it's also present in other body fluids um, for Zika in particular, which I'll talk about in a sec. Um, if it's mosquito transmission, you are only able to give it back to a mosquito when you're viremic because their exposure is blood. Um, the interesting thing is for all of these diseases, the majority of people are asymptomatic. You can still transmit while asymptomatic. Your symptoms don't necessarily indicate that, or lack of symptoms doesn't indicate that you can't transmit the virus. So you can give it to other people or to a mosquito who can then bite other people um, without any symptoms and without ever knowing that you've been infected. Zika virus. Zika, another single-stranded RNA virus uh, in the, again, backwards, genus Flaviviridae, uh, uh, or sorry, genus Flaviviridae, family Flaviviridae, closely related to dengue, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis, and West Nile virus. Um, transmission of Zika is more complicated from the bite of infected Aedes species, species mosquito, Aedes aegypti, and Aedes albopictus. Um, and we're seeing the first clusters of Aedes albopictus transmitted Zika. Um, recently, we saw this in the south of France. So again, not prone to outbreaks, but definitely able to transmit. Um, so there's also maternal fetal transmission, intrauterine and perinatal. As if you remember the other flaviviruses, we don't see a lot of perinatal transmission. With Zika, we do. Um, there's sexual transmission from any infected partner. Either way, you can transmit Zika virus sexually, um, also through laboratory exposure and probable transmission via blood transfusion. The incubation period is 3 to 14 days, and viremia lasts a few days to a week. So that's the answer for that one for Zika. Um, the virus can be shed in semen and urine after viremia has resolved. 
Um, so viral RNA has been detected in semen as long as 188 days after illness onset, and the duration of transmissibility has not been established. So to date, we've seen cases of sexual transmission that usually involve exposure within a few weeks of illness onset, um, and that's where most of our recommendations come from. But we can't rule out transmission beyond that. So Zika clinical illness is generally mild, if symptomatic at all. Um, many infections are asymptomatic. Symptoms last several days to a week and include fever, rash, joint pain, conjunctivitis. Um, they can include muscle pain and headache as well. You see the similarities across all of these viruses. Um, severe disease requiring hospitalization is uncommon and fatalities are rare. So Zika virus and Guillain-Barre syndrome were, leaked, were linked in the uh, outbreaks that occurred in the Americas in 2015-2016, um, and CDC research suggests temporal and geographic relationships between the two. Uh, we saw in French Polynesia in the outbreak in 2013, there were 38 cases of Guillain-Barre in an estimated 28,000 persons, which is increased case incidence rate. Uh, case control studies revealed a strong association with an odds ratio greater than 34 uh, between Gambare and previous Zika infection. There's a case series from seven countries that looks at the 2015-2016 data and showed an increase in incidence of Gambare syndrome between 100 and 877%. Um, it also involves brain ischemia, meningoencephalitis, and acute myelitis, complicating Zika virus infection. Um, these have all been reported in association. Zika virus during pregnancy. The incidence of Zika virus infection in pregnant women is not known. Um, infection can occur in any trimester, and there's no evidence of severe disease compared with non-pregnant women. So if you're pregnant and infected with Zika, you're not more likely to have symptoms than you are if you are not pregnant and infected with Zika. Um, and there's no in, uh, evidence of increased susceptibility. So it's not as if more pregnant women get infected with Zika than non-pregnant women. The mosquitoes bite at will. <laughs> um, congenital Zika syndrome uh, is characterized by microcephaly, intracranial calcifications, other brain anomalies, eye abnormalities, and other anomalies, including clubfoot, contractures. There's a whole series of different birth defects that we see uh, with Zika virus infections. Um, so what you see here are marked calcifications that increase fluid spaces uh, in the CT on the top and the MR on the lower. Uh, and then uh, the top right shows the prominence of the occipital bone, and the MR shows, again, increased fluid. Um, these are just kind of your stereotypical Zika virus-infected uh, films and something that you would then look out for in, uh, in your uh, prenatal and perinatal visits with a, any woman who has had uh, Zika virus exposure during pregnancy. So Zika virus infection during pregnancy has a lot of possible adverse outcomes, including miscarriage and stillbirth, um, and problems related to brain injury. So eye abnormalities are prevalent, hearing impairment, seizures, swallowing impairment, 
limb abnormalities, severe irritability, developmental dyslays, and growth abnormalities. Now, we'll say the current research is showing um, on children born to Zika-affected mothers that they may be born perfectly normal with no indications of uh, any uh, severe outcomes at birth. And we're seeing developmental delays begin, beginning at age two. So it's really important to follow these kids throughout their lifespan um, and look for delays that may. Another interesting part, uh, thing that we haven't seen much um, otherwise is they're born with a healthy head size and we see microcephaly after birth. So it is a, it's a new and novel area. It's a virus that we knew very little about before the outbreak in the Americas. Um, and it's an area for research, but also it's important to have lifetime care for these kids. Um, and I've, I've talked about this at this conference for many years, and it's really important for women who are pregnant in uh, areas with risk of Zika that regardless of their prenatal scans, they be followed, their kids be followed, um, and they need to be prepared. So this is the world map of areas with risk of Zika, and it has changed in the last year. Um, in February, we updated it. The whole world used to be purple, basically, um, and we have changed this map to be more consistent with the maps for the other diseases. So here we have purple countries are countries that have reported Zika cases, so locally transmitted, locally acquired Zika cases. The yellow countries are the countries that have the mosquito, they have dengue, they have other uh, viral vector-borne illnesses, but they haven't reported Zika virus. This doesn't mean it's not there. It may be surveillance systems. It may be laboratory testing limitations. It may be that it's not there, but we can't say that it's not there. So we want to be very clear that these are – the yellow countries are ones with no reported Zika. doesn't mean it's not there. The purple countries are countries with reported Zika. So to say that in our website language, we do not have accurate information on the current level of risk in specific areas. The large outbreak in the Americas is over, but Zika is and will continue to be a potential risk in many countries in the Americas and around the world. In 2018 and 2019, there's no local spread of Zika virus reported in the continental U.S., Not in 2018 and 2019. Yeah. Um, so we have had imported cases, but no local transmission. So people could get Zika somewhere else, and it would be diagnosed here. Um, but it wasn't given to mosquitoes here and then given to someone else. So there was no what we call autochthonous transmission of Zika in the U.S. Um, anything else? So the current Zika recommendation for pregnant women, the only way to completely prevent Zika infection during pregnancy is to not travel to areas with risk of Zika and to use precautions to, or avoid sex with someone who has recently traveled to this area. Pregnant women should not travel to areas with Zika outbreaks, and we don't have any currently. I showed you the map. It's purple and yellow. If we had reports of a Zika outbreak, we'd, put a, um, we'd shade that country red. So we don't have any large outbreaks of Zika currently. Um, but if we did, we would say pregnant women should not travel there. Um, and if you're considering travel to an area with risk of Zika, 
pregnant women should talk to their healthcare providers first. It's important to understand the risks of Zika infection during pregnancy, the ways to protect yourself, the signs of Zika, and the limitations of Zika testing upon return. And for the clinicians among you, this is a hard conversation to have. This is a conversation about risk tolerance. So you would speak, I would say, in my experience, to a 25-year-old woman of childbearing age who is thinking about pregnancy very differently than you would talk to a 40-year-old who's undergoing in vitro fertilization, right? So they have very different uh, risk tolerances for Zika virus infection and the outcomes. So if you have someone who is not looking to become pregnant soon, who is young and is not, if, if one of these adverse outcomes were to occur, has good family support to care for the child, or if, and I would hate for this to happen, if there was a miscarriage or a stillbirth, she's young enough that she could try again and still have a family if that's her hope. Um, you could talk to her very differently about her willingness to travel to a Zika-affected area than you would for someone who doesn't have those options and who isn't willing to accept those risks. And if the person is willing to accept the risks and they're 40, that's fine, but it's their decision. And as a clinician, there's not much else we can say. Um, We can't tell them the likelihood of getting bitten by a Zika-affected mosquito if they are the likelihood of the child having any types of congenital malformations or uh, brain injuries. So they have to take the knowledge that we do have, and make the decision that's right for themselves and their families. Yep. If a woman is infected with Zika but Mm -hmm. not pregnant Mm -hmm. and then becomes pregnant later, Mm -hmm. can she still, can the baby still have (laughs) children? So we have interim guidance for reproductive age travel. I should ask if there are any other questions before I move on to this. (laughs) I have a friend who's a missionary. have given talks at maternal fetal conferences. Zika is kind of the elephant in the room when we talk about congenital syndromes right now because of the outbreak and the new data we have. But there are many diseases prevalent in these countries that have horrible impacts on pregnancy and uh, resulting births. Malaria is one of them. Um, Dengue is another. So there are There are more things to think about than Zika, Um, and Zika, the way that I use these these different data, um, are to open the conversation with Zika and talk about all of the things that you can do planning pregnancy to protect yourself and your future family from these illnesses. And some of that is behavioral, some of that is mosquito avoidance, some of that is not traveling, um, depending on your risk tolerance, Um, and some of that for other diseases, is vaccination prior to pregnancy. 
Rubella is one of these issues. We have a recurrent rubella outbreak in Japan. Um, so we recommend that pregnant women who are not previously vaccinated don't travel there. Um, and this is an issue that we would like to never have to deal with because we would hope that everyone is up to date on their MMR. Um, so it should be a very small population that we're saying anything to because people should be immune. And if you're immune, fine, go ahead, no problems. Um, but if you're not immune, things to think about. So again, it's when you look at your the people that are visiting you, the people that you're treating, the people who you come in contact with on a daily basis. Um, there are a lot of different types of conversations to be had, and the conversation about pregnancy and pregnant women is a difficult one to have. Um, so we understand that, and we try to – the change in our guidance from do not travel to have this conversation, um, I think is a reflection of the fact that we're not going to stop anyone from doing what they want to do. If they want to go and they're okay with it, they should go. But they need to be fully informed when they're making these decisions. And that's part of our responsibility, I think, to fully inform them about the decisions that they're making and the possible consequences. Yep. So kind of going back to the, the question about mm -hmm. yep. so do we know how many data yet about if you get to get So that's this slide right here. <laughs> and I'll go back to that. Um, so we, and again, because we never really studied Zika. Zika was discovered in 1947 in the Zika forest in Uganda. And there wasn't much research done on it in the 20th century because it was a mild flu-like illness with no apparent consequences. So it wasn't until the outbreak in the Americas that we saw that there were consequences of Zika virus infection, and those were maternal fetal. Um, so the research is new and ongoing, um, and we have some kind of underlying assumptions based on what we know about flaviviruses, about dengue, about yellow fever, about the other ones that we've been talking about. Um, so we assume that infection with Zika virus provides lifetime immunity. We do know that it's transmissible via body fluids um, for a period of time after infection and after viremia. So we say if only the male partner travels to an area with a Zika outbreak or other areas with risk of Zika, that the couple should use condoms or not have sex for three months. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, and that from the... And that is from the start of the – and if the, the, the male is symptomatic from the start of the partner's symptoms to the date he was diagnosed with Zika. Um, and if only the female partner travels uh, to areas of Zika, we say the couple should use condoms and not have sex for at least two months. Um, I know that three months is a long time. <laughs> uh, at, and as I said previously, we see most transmission occurring within a month of um, infection. So I will just leave that where it is. Um, if both partners travel to an area with Zika virus uh, or risk of Zika, uh, the couple should use condoms or not have sex I, for three months. And if we... Tr if you're traveling to an area with a Zika virus outbreak, again, we talk 
to these patients and say, you need to talk to your healthcare provider, you need to talk about the risks and possible consequences, you need to talk about your family planning scheme, and make certain that this travel is something that you want to do right now. If you have ongoing exposure, either live in or travel to frequently an area with any risk of Zika, so those uh, purple areas on the map, it's mosquito bite prevention. Um, because of the ongoing exposure, you talk to your healthcare provider about uh, your plans for pregnancy and the possible effects of Zika virus on you or your baby. Yeah. So why is it that for the male partner it's too much and for the female partner it's too much? It lasts longer than the semen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? I would tell them in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we see it tailing off. It's, it's a curve. Um, so we see it tailing off after one month, but it depends on your, again, your risk tolerance. Um, so, and this is kind of our little blurb for, for you to talk to patients or missionaries who are not yet infected. Decisions about pregnancy planning are personal and complex, and circumstances will vary for women and their partners. Uh, they should discuss pregnancy planning with a trusted doctor or healthcare provider. And as part of the preconception counseling, women and their partners who are thinking about pregnancy should talk to their doctor or healthcare provider about their reproductive life plans, their potential exposures during pregnancy, um, their partner's potential exposures, because those can be different. Um, and as a result of counseling with health care providers, some women um, and their partners might decide to delay pregnancy. building in country, and I think it's part of what we all do. Um, I've lived on every continent and seen this or iterations of this in lots of different ways in lots of different places. Um, and if we're there, it's, I feel it's a responsibility that we have because we know, right? Um, yep. But there's also the issue of um, availability. And is it better to have something than nothing? So these are all things that you need to weigh in your local situations and that you'll experience in country and that you'll have to handle in the best way possible while mitigating the risk as best you can. Yep. All right. So in closing, your differential diagnosis. Based on the typical clinical features, the differential diagnosis for several of these infections is really broad. You're looking at dengue, chikungunya, lepto, malaria, rubella, measles. You're looking at rash illnesses, right? Um, parvo, enteroviruses, adenoviruses, Zika, other alpha viruses, um, which we are now seeing uh, more of than in recent years. What do we do? We recommend mosquito bite prevention. When possible, avoid known areas with disease transmission. Uh, we provide website updates on regional disease transmission patterns and outbreaks. 
Uh, we say wear clothing that minimizes exposed skin. I know this. I go to these places. Am I going to wear long pants and long sleeves as we recommend? I should. Everyone should, right? Um, used for methane-treated clothing and gear, except in Puerto Rico because it doesn't work well in Puerto Rico. Uh, stay and sleep in air-conditioned or screened rooms if possible. Use a bed net if you're sleeping in an area exposed to the outdoors and an empty standing water in your houses to eliminate mosquito breeding grounds. And this is basic community service. When you, when you enter an area, look around. See what is there and how you can help. We recommend insect repellent products with one of the following ingredients. And these are all EPA-registered ingredients that have been tested and shown to work. There are a lot of others that have not been shown to work. It doesn't mean that they don't. It just means that we don't have data to show that they do. DEET, 20 to 50%, always works. Picaridin, oil of lemon and eucalyptus. And this is an interesting one because this one is not safe for use on children under the age of three years, but it's the only all-natural, now use quote-unquote organic one. So a lot of people want to use this on kids because they think it's healthier. It's the only one that is not safe for small children. Uh, so important to remember. Do you know why? It's... I, I haven't read the, uh, the EPA, the, or I'm sorry, the clinical trials, but it came from clinical trial data, yeah. Um, so we also recommend IR3535, which is basically synthetic, um, and 2-endecanone. Always use as directed. This means reapplication. Um, it means put your sunscreen on first, then put your mosquito repellent on. You don't want to wipe it off when you put on your sunscreen. Um, and you can protect young infants with mosquito netting, long sleeves, and long pants. Uh, in terms of post-travel follow-up, travelers who develop symptoms after travel should seek health care and disclose their travel history. This is a very easy question to ask that many clinicians do not ask. Have you traveled recently? If yes, where? Think about the maps that we've just looked at. Basically, the southern U.S. to northern Argentina. In those latitudes, all of these are possibilities. So these are things to think about. I'm going to talk a little bit about cross-reactivity now because it's very difficult to diagnose flaviviruses. IgM can be positive due to antibodies against related flaviviruses, dengue, yellow fever, Zika. So if you've had a yellow fever vaccination, you have flavivirus antibodies. When you test for dengue, they can cross-react. So it's important to understand that these are, it's very difficult to specifically diagnose these flaviviruses if there's been exposure. Um, neutralizing antibody testing may not discriminate between cross-reacting antibodies and primary infections. And it's difficult to dis distinguish the infecting virus in people who have been previously infected or vaccinated against other flaviviruses. So healthcare providers should work with their state and local health departments to ensure that the test results are interpreted correctly. It's very difficult to interpret a positive flavivirus test. And that's where I'll stop if there are any other questions. Yes, we're on time. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about for that? Or I, I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. Um, so it's 
it's interesting, and there, I think it, there's been a shift in thinking about it um, because it's lasting long, longer than expected. Um, and we see there are ongoing studies looking at the proportion of patients with um, symptomatic chick um, and long-term consequences. So hopefully we'll have more data on that. So, <laughs> um, this is updated uh, testing algorithms that we put out recently. Um, so, this is looking at dengue and Zika virus testing because we had very clear guidance for Zika virus testing based on the 2016 outbreak. Um, but currently, with the dengue transmission, uh, what we say is uh, – we want to perform dengue and Zika virus NATs, so nucleic acid amplification tests. Um, and a positive Zika virus NAT will be acute Zika virus infection, and a positive dengue NAT will be acute dengue virus infection. That's easy. Yep. Uh, the chicken virus, you have already had it. Mm -hmm. Is there a likelihood of you getting it again, like with anything? Or? That's a good question. Um, I have not heard of secondary chick cases. But that doesn't mean it's not possible, and I have to look at that. Yep. Do you know what would get them to the The ones that I listed, there is none. They're all the yep. So are all the treatments mm -hmm. merely supportive? Yes. Yeah. Um, so getting back to testing. Uh, if you can test within the first three to uh, – within the first day to seven days, you want to do a nucleic acid, basically PCR. Um, if you can't, then you move over to uh, IgM serology. And that's where it gets tricky because that's where you get cross-reactivity. If you're doing nucleic acid, you're not going to get cross-reactive. You get definitive diagnoses. If you're doing serology, you might get cross-reactivity, and there we recommend parentes. Um, so that's, there are different recommendations for those who are not pregnant and those who are pregnant based on the risk involved. Yes? I have heard the same. I haven't seen good data on it. So we can't determine the risk of getting yellow fever uh, in country, but the likelihood of someone getting bitten based on age by the mosquito is very, very low. So I would guess that there is no difference in risk of infection. Um, whether there is a difference in the outcome of infection based on age, that is a good question. Um, and I don't know that we have enough yellow fever virus uh, disease cases to determine whether there's a difference. This is a higher. And well, so where is it prevalent in one area more than another? No. 
so what we see with flaviviruses uh, is that we have cycles. So for any of these viruses, let's take Zika as an example. We had a huge outbreak in the Americas in 2016, 2015 to 2017, really. A lot of people got infected. Because a lot of people got infected, they're not at risk anymore for Zika. So we haven't seen much Zika in 2018, 2019. As new kids are born, new people move to the region who are susceptible and have never been infected before, we're building a susceptible population. Because there's Zika still being transmitted, once there are enough susceptibles, a new outbreak will start. The same thing happens with dengue. Um, so we see either a new uh, a new susceptible population forming, or new virus in a new area. As we said, uh, immunity to one does not give you the same protection against the other serotypes. So if you have an importation of dengue 4 into an area that's only seen dengue 1, you're going to see outbreaks. Anything else? We have four minutes left. <laughs> no? Oil of lemon and eucalyptus? Yes. No. It has to be over three. Okay. What I've done in the past mm -hmm. is put it on a cotton ball in the in the crib. Mm -mm. No. Mm -mm. That was a no no. That was a no no. I'm sorry. You, no, it's okay. Uh, use oh, any of the other ones. Yeah. Any of the other ones. Okay. Yep. Okay. I was in uh, Nicaragua a few years ago and learned a, uh, I don't know if it works or not, but the mothers there taught mm -hmm. me someone that worked on their children. They use uh, vanilla, mm -hmm. well, ex extract of vanilla mixed in water. <laughs> it seemed to work. Again, I'm not saying that other things don't work. Mm -hmm. They just haven't been shown to work. Yeah. I, I had this conversation with my daughter's all-natural organic preschool. <laughs> it's like, I, I appreciate that you are putting whatever natural elements you are on your fields. However, it can't hurt, it can't hurt but please use the ones that are shown to work also. <laughs> It is. It's part of an MMWR. It was published in July 2019. Yeah, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Um, so if you Google MMWR Zika Dengue Testing, it comes up. All right. Thank you guys so much for your attention. I really appreciate it. Safe travels.